It's the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, November 12, 2020. This is episode 163. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here. He has part two of his talk about librarians and how they've been portrayed in the movies. Now, this is, uh, as I said, the second part of this topic. If you want to hear the first part from Stephen, you can uh, go back in your podcast uh, player to Thursday, October 8. That was episode 138. You can find that episode in the Code St. Luke podcast stream. And just a reminder to everyone, uh, we're very happy that you have called us uh, today at uh, 2 p.m. to listen. But if you have a smartphone or a tablet, um, and if somebody can uh, show you how to get podcasts going on your device, you can listen to us anytime, anywhere from your device on your own schedule. If you need help with that, you can uh, contact the Code St. Luke Public Library at 514-485-6900. Librarians will happily walk you through this process and get you set up if you need some help. All right, here is Stephen Tomlinson to talk about librarians in the movies. Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be concluding with my two-part series on the myriad ways in which both libraries and librarians have been depicted throughout the history of the movies. Please also go to the Code St. Luke podcast page on SoundCloud to listen to part one and to explore other topics there that might be of interest to you. The label librarian, and for the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to disregard the professional qualification for to most onlookers, anyone who works in a library is a librarian. So the label librarian, it evokes a strong mental picture in our culture and as such provides a handy shortcut for filmmakers who want to get to the point with the minimum of exposition, in most cases anyway. In part one, I discussed several popular librarian character types. Quote unquote, with credit to Jennifer Snack Brown and her Real Librarians website, which suggests that librarians have been thoroughly misrepresented, or at least thoroughly stereotyped throughout the history of movies. And it is, um, it is where such stereotypes and their offshoots are very well categorized. That's uh, Jennifer Snack Brown's Real Librarians website. I highly recommend it. Among these representations that I talked about in part one, and always keep in mind that the stereotypical may often say much more about those doing the stereotyping than those actually stereotyped. In any case, in part one, I talked about such representations as derived from the Real Librarian's website as the spinster librarian, the old fogey, the spirited young woman, and the liberated librarian. Those are four um, character types that uh, Snack Brown has identified as being uh, prevalent in the representation of librarians throughout the history of the movies. But those are not the only ones. I'm going to continue with um, discussing a few others. But before doing so, it might be worth keeping in mind where a lot of these stereotypes uh, may have originated. Certainly the influential educator and librarian, Melville Dewey, is blamed for a lot of this. 
uh, Dewey is the figure who largely systematized much of librarianship and invented the categorization method we still use today, the Dewey decimal system in, in uh, classifying books. Uh, and as such an influential figure, he really set the tone in the 19th century, the late 19th century, and promoting the precedent of uh, hiring cheap female labor for libraries. Uh, in a powerful speech in the movie Party Girl, which I spoke about in part one, um, also one of the few movies, I think, that really presents an accurate and positive representation of librarianship. The protagonist's godmother in that movie, a librarian, remarks upon how Dewey hired women as librarians, not because he was an early equal opportunities employer, but because he believed that they would be more easily controlled and at least in her words, the figure in the movie Party Girl, um, that they couldn't be expected to think too much. And so librarianship, um, as a matter of course, became a highly feminized profession, largely associated with service work and lacking the status or compensation of uh, other professions. And because it was so female-dominated, it became the subject of much mischaracterization, hence stereotypes. And not a little ridicule as well, you know, almost entirely by men at a time when women literally had the status of second-class citizens. So please keep that in mind as I discuss um, these often really quite unfair stereotypes in relation to their presentation in the history of movies. Continuing where I left off in part one with uh, Jennifer Snack Brown's movie librarian character types, the next of those is that of the naughty librarian, which is a character type with the idea of sexual repression at its very core. Now, such a character is often young, physically very attractive, sometimes with fashionable clothing or more often presented with conservative clothing in a library setting, like a young spinster, as it were, who you know, lets her hair down uh, after work, quote-unquote, or otherwise when outside the library setting, you know, which is in itself an act of liberation. Uh, a good example of such a character type, I think, is that portrayed by Jennifer O'Neill in the movie Personals from 1990, who during, you know, the daytime, during her um, her working day is a stereotypically boring, quote-unquote, librarian with a hint of innocence, but there's no doubt that behind those glasses, she's hotter than hot. And on her off hours, O'Neill uses personal advertisements, God forbid, in <laughs> newspapers, do you remember those? To obtain dates with men and then kill them. <laughs> now, the entire conceit here plays on the assumption that librarians must be deeply repressed people. And it's also a deeply Freudian notion that monstrous behavior is manifested by repression of sexual desire. Now, in this sense, the, the librarian is represented by the movies as often a sexually repressed character type prone to sexually charged and obsessive behavior when so-called normal sexual desires go unfulfilled or are continually repressed. This, at least, is how Freud may have understood such character types. 
as portrayed by Jennifer O'Neill in the movie Prisoners, and how filmmakers have often characterized librarians. But unlike their young, attractive female counterparts, naughty male librarians, though just as sexually repressed, are invariably portrayed as creepy, middle-aged, and physically undesirable. This is a bit of a movie world double standard, I would say, but from the point of view of a male-dominated society, at least in the past, well, to be fair, still in the present, there would have been in the very idea of a male librarian, I think, something viewed as an off-kilter figure and someone certainly who would have been seen as against, for the most part, heterosexual societal norms. Now, the actor Peter Sellers, um, he often portrayed such character types, the creepy and the lecherous. Um, It was meant to be for comic effect, but it didn't necessarily come across that way. Uh, Now, he didn't always play librarians, of course, um, and I'm mostly thinking here of a non-librarian character uh, Peter Sellers played, uh, that of Claire Quilty in the 1962 Stanley Kubrick adaptation of the novel Lolita, but um, in which he's very much the the creepy and lecherous um, character type. But that, that, that same year, 1962, he did in fact play just such a character type as a librarian, both um, poorly paid and professionally frustrated, but also creepy and lecherous um, in the 1962 British comedy Only Two Can Play. Michael Haybeck in The Name of the Rose from 1986, which I spoke about in part one, is an especially acute and obese version of the naughty librarian. Here, presented as a medieval monk and sexual deviant, and it serves as a reminder that homosexuality has long been considered at most times and in most cultures as deviant behavior. And in the context of libraries, caused male librarians to be viewed in the popular imagination, at least in the past, as something less than completely normal. Woody Allen, long before the fallout of his marriage to Mia Farrow, also often played on the Peter Sellers-style nebbish persona with equally creepy and lecherous undertones, though always played for laughs and through the prism of a greater emotional appeal and personal affability. It was never meant to be threatening. That was the intention in any case. It's hard not to read uh, or watch uh, Alan today and not view his roles in his films, um, you know, through um, um, much as what has been presented in the news in, in recent years. But um, still, he was often, I feel, poking fun at himself in, in such portrayals. And they, as I said, they never come across as threatening in his movies. At least not to me as a, um, as a man in watching them. And that's something you don't usually get with Sellers. Sellers is, um, is, is very much not, uh, is, is a little more complicated than that. 
Now, I don't think Woody Allen ever played a librarian explicitly, but there's a wonderful library scene in 1964's What's New Pussycat? with Romy Schneider, in which Allen gets to play against his typically nebbish, um, you know, so-called cowardly persona. Uh, and it's a character part that he wrote, by the way, by... In this scene, physically defeating a stereotypically blonde Aryan beefcake macho type uh, bully, you know, who literally towers above him. And in doing this, in defeating that character, he, he, he wins the continued affection of the, uh, the Rami Schneider character. But I think the scene says a lot about the male fear of humiliation, especially in the presence of women. Uh, especially in the presence of women um, whom men would like to see as a potential romantic partner, which is often the case in those early Woody Allen movies. But I think the scene, the scene in what's, uh, the library scene in What's New Pussycat is also a reminder that the library is a traditional site of conservation, rectitude, moral rectitude, rules, and proper behavior. And the movies have often used libraries for that because of those very associations, you know, and associations that institutionally mirror the repressed sexuality in the life of every individual, ultimately. I mean, that's just the nature of civilization. You know, one must repress, at least to some degree, um, one's sexual desires. That's certainly a Freudian understanding of civilization. And for that reason, as I said, libraries often serve in the movies as thematically fitting places for physical and verbal expressions of love. And often hanky-panky as well. Whether for comic effect, as in What's New Pussycat, or for dramatic effect, as in The Name of the Rose. In the movie Atonement from 2007, there is a memorably torrid love scene that takes place in the library stacks. Perhaps you remember it. it. It's also a reminder that libraries are traditionally, as I've suggested, traditionally seen as places of quiet and order where sexual activity would certainly be frowned upon and seen as an obvious transgression. But in the movies, any act of transgression has great dramatic potential, both for the characters involved and for the audience vicariously engaged with that transgression. And this is certainly why libraries are a very favorite site for movie lovers. But in Atonement, there's something else as well. I think the rigidity and ossification of a library setting in which that scene is set, that, 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 that oh-so-torrid love scene, it also mirrors very much the English class system of the 1930s, I believe, if I recall, recall rightly. But it's definitely a very, a, very, um, a very rigidly structured class system that those two characters are transgressing in their lovemaking. And the library metaphorically, symbolically, helps to drive home that point. A very different movie of a kind, well, maybe not so different, is the John Hughes comedy drama from 1985, The Breakfast Club, which 
also plays on this idea of a library, in this case a high school library, as a stultifying place of order and repression. I mean, it literally serves as a kind of prison, or at least is suggestive of a prison-like atmosphere where five high school students are sentenced, as it were, to serve their detention time for the duration of the film. I mean, almost the entirety of the film takes place in the fairly nondescript suburban high school library setting, where in a, ma- in a minor act of rebellion, one character is seen to switch around a bunch of cards in the card catalog. The card catalog, do you remember those? Uh, definitely an object from another era. Um, while um, an- another character tears up pages from a volume of Moliere in an act of, of quite defiant <laughs> library vandalism. But also an unconscious act of transgression, I would say, against the stultifying air of repression that this particular high school library is meant to represent. Now, if that's not exactly how I remember my school library, certainly the the tables and lighting of the setting are recognizably my own uh, from my from my youth, but. Um, the modern sculpture um, seen in the middle of the library, that is a bit strange. I mean, what public high school library would have a budget for that? Certainly not my own. I think a much more positive conception of the library in the movies is the idea of the library as a kind of refuge and site of freedom from a hostile outer world. But in the same way that a school library can feel like a prison to the teenagers of the Breakfast Club, at least, the prison library in the Shawshank Redemption, made in 1994, and literally a, a library set in a prison, provides a sense of solace and freedom from the crushing reality that surrounds the characters played by both Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. But in the Shawshank Redemption, the prison library is not just the metaphorical source of escape from a lifetime sentence, but also the literal space where a prison escape plan comes together, which underscores that that very metaphor in the film of library as source of refuge. That's a beautiful thing. And also recall that in the Shawshank Redemption, that a character who has worked in the prison library, when released from prison really can't function on the outside. The library, even in prison, was quite literally his freedom. But I think my very favorite movie scene that conveys this idea of the library as something much more positive um, liberating, even illuminating in in informational and intellectual sense of the term. And that can be found in the movie Seven, which is David Fincher's psychological crime thriller from 1996. Uh, in Seven, two detectives played by Morgan Freeman, again, <laughs> and Brad Pitt, work together to solve a series of murders that follow the theme of the Seven Deadly Sins. This is a serial killer movie, right? 
And with a serial killer on the loose, Freeman contacts a friend in the FBI who gives him a list of people who have recently borrowed certain library books dealing with those seven deadly sins. And this leads the two detectives to the public library off hours. Actually, it's Freeman alone, as I recall. It's uh, the Brad Pitt character who is at home studying crime scene pictures, which will be intercut uh, with Freeman in the library. But in this scene, the library is clearly presented as the ultimate civilized refuge from a brutal, literally murderous world beyond its walls. And what's conveyed in this idea of the library as a place of knowledge, where knowledge leads to an enlightenment of a kind, and an enlightenment perhaps symbolized by the rows of green-shaded banker's lamps, all illuminating the darkened spaces of the library, as I said, it is off hours. In one part of this scene, Freeman chastises the library guards. I mean, it's off hours, remember, saying, and I quote here, I'll never understand it, gentlemen, all these books, a world of knowledge at your fingertips, and you guys, you just play poker all night, quote unquote. (laughs) What follows is a guard from an upper floor saying, as if in response, hey, how's this for culture? as he plays a recording of music by Johann Sebastian Bach from a radio or some other device. But it's, it's a music that is intended to indicate a certain civilized feeling that the library setting itself in this film, Seven, also conveys in its very structure, in its very being, in its very purpose as a site of knowledge, and illumination in a darkened world, in a world almost mirroring that of the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages of the name of the rose, a world beset with the seven deadly sins, even though the real world setting of seven is a contemporary one, a contemporary 1990s one. It does reflect a very dark world that we associated with the benighted Middle Ages. But the music, the music of Bach, this very civilized music, he continues to play over the course of the scene. And in, and in doing so, it, it really lends dignity and a sense of gravitas to Morgan Freeman's detective uh, and his nearly awestruck exploration of the library and its books which will ultimately help him and his partner catch the serial killer. And all of which, uh, as I indicated, is intercut with crime scene shots to underscore the conception, the very conception of library as refuge from a darkness outside it. And not just that, not just a refuge, but a source of illumination upon that darkness. It's a wonderful scene, my very favorite movie library scene in the history of films. Uh, Certainly one of the best, most memorable, most positive conceptions of the library in the entire history of the movies. Another of uh, Jennifer Sneck Brown's library character types from the films, from films, is that of the information provider which is a crucial element 
in the unfolding of so many movies. Someone supplying, not even necessarily a librarian, but someone supplying a crucial piece of information, a secondary character doing so. And that is something, of course, that librarians do as a matter of course in the very nature of our jobs. <laughs> I'm a librarian. Did I neglect to mention that? In a movie context, we might see this information provider type as, um, you know, a librarian. That's a clue, a clue giver. You know, um, as I said, always a supporting or minor character in a film whose sole purpose is to propel the plot by providing some crucial bit of information, or in some cases even misinformation, to a leading character. Now, usually the library setting is established briefly with the, you know, with that information provider or librarian, identified by such occupational tasks as shelving or stabbing books, pushing book carts, checking out books, answering a reference question, that sort of thing. Now, such characters are a variety of ages and roles too brief to establish any sense of personality or true character and are usually only listed as librarian in the end credits of the movie. Um, Lillian Bronson in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn from 1945 is, I think, a, a particularly good example of this information provider trope. But so is uh, Althea McGrath in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. But my favorite... My favorite example of the, um, of the um, information provider can be found in a scene in Alan J. Pakula's 1976 uh, drama, All the President's Men, uh, which is a, a fictional, fictionalized adaptation of the, uh, the nonfiction work, of course, by the Washington Post reporters Woodward and Bernstein in the film played by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. But the scene... Um, the scene happens um, just before we see them in the reading room at the Library of Congress, where they go through every book that the Richard Nixon White House had requested. They, they do so going through all of these information slips um, by hand. But they do it after um, being helped by <laughs> a truly cool rule-busting African-American male librarian played by... Um, little-known Jay Stewart, uh, who's listed in the end credits of All the President's Men as simply male librarian. He has no name. In fact, I mean, he's only in the scene for a few seconds, so there would be no time to establish character. But nevertheless, as a male black librarian, it is a true rarity in an overwhelmingly white and female-dominated profession as mirrored by the history of movies. But um, as Woodward and Bernstein, Redford and Huston, uh, Hoffman, excuse me, um, go through those information slips in the reading room of the Library of Congress, there's this wonderful point of view shot of the camera rising above Woodward and Bernstein as they go through the request slips. So initially the camera is focused upon them quite individually by hand going through those slips. And then it just rises gradually, smoothly, 
quite seamless, seamlessly to the top of the building, quite literally. And as it does so, of course, it expands upon um, the entirety of the scene around them of people in this circular room, you know, at their individual spots, doing their work, reading their books, writing. And by which it is a, it's a magnificent scene, it, it really in the breadth of field that is, that it exemplifies and helps, I think, to underscore the notion of library as, as site of, of, of truly inexhaustible knowledge and illumination, really, by, by beginning um, on this very narrow focus on what these, these two figures, however important their work, are doing by, by expanding upon that, moving towards the ceiling and bringing into focus everything around them quite gradually, it, it really underscores the, this, 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 in its breadth, breadth of field, as I said, this notion of library as an inexhaustible site of knowledge and illumination. Wonderful stuff. And it's difficult not to think that David Fincher was calling upon this scene too when he filmed his own library scene in his movie Seven. Slightly similar, if more recent scenes, and um, perhaps influenced by those in Fincher, and also the, um, the, the, the Pacula adaptation of All the President's Men can be found in the Hogwarts library scenes from just about every Harry Potter movie, where the library functions as the, the source of information that helps solve the mysterious goings-on at Hogwarts school. And it's, you know, it's, it's where students quietly study amid wonderfully leather-bound books with, you know, I don't believe any computers in sight, of course. Um, you know, the entire feeling is if, um, you know, we were, we were being thrown back to some, you know, idyllic never-never-land of yore. Um, you know, in this quiet, no-computer world. And just as in the movies Seven and All the President's Men, the impression is that information can help solve problems, even crimes, and that the library is where you find information necessary to do so. A particular such scene is a nighttime visit to the locked section of a library where dangerous books are kept, and which recalls the name of the rose where only secret knowledge can be found. You know, funnily enough, however, and given the prominence of the Hogwarts Library in this series, we never hear or see anything about librarians themselves, which, if I'm correct here, is a little bit odd. But maybe they were the victims of cutbacks. In the past especially, librarians in movies have frequently been used for comic effect in supporting character roles, usually middle-aged to old conservative in appearance. Again, someone who prefers books to people, um, as if their rule-bound stuffiness somehow inherently makes them funny, like odd ducks or overly polite creatures from another world. A good example of this is from the classic Hollywood movie, The Philadelphia Story, from 1940, in which there is a scene in the city library, a small actually a small town library, if I recall correctly, in which we are introduced in a couple of scenes to a quite eccentric Quaker librarian played 
by Hilda Plowright, who shushes Kate Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart um, when not speaking to them in this antiquated dialect of vows and thuses. Um, And this is very different in its comic effect from, say, the notorious scene in Sophie's Choice with the the quite mean and evil reference librarian who um, who um, really humiliates the um, the Sophie character in Philadelphia's story. Uh, as I said, it's played for comic effect, and the uh, the shushing uh, librarian here really, really, she means no harm. She's just a necessary figure of fun, playing off the general conception that libraries are somewhat worlds unto themselves and bastions of eccentricity even, you know, as it were. And it also helps to have um, the two um, would-be lovers played by Heppard and Stewart have something, you know, however minor, around which to bond. (laughs) As I've argued in both parts of this series, most librarians, whether female or male, are burdened with often stereotypically unattractive traits in the movies. But there are some, usually major characters, with enough screen time to allow viewers to witness more fully rounded characterizations and glimpses of a personal life even. Usually viewed in a positive light, though almost all of these positive atypical characters are Female. I'm thinking here of Catherine Hepburn in 1957's Desk Set. And Catherine Hepburn, always the avatar of wit, intelligence, and authority even. As is Helen Mirren in the 1984 Irish drama entitled Cal. But both are allowed to be distinctly feminine, stylish, and attractive as well. Parker Posey, whom I've already spoken of in Party Girl, is another good example of this, and perhaps an inheritor of such roles of the more fully rounded librarian type character. And in all of these films, largely without the stereotypes. And in that sense, they are atypical. In Desk Set, though though the characters are never referred to as librarians, Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, excuse me, and her three girls, quote unquote, as she calls them, it is 1957, after all, run the reference department of a big television and radio station in Manhattan. Their roles as information providers and professionals are critical to the storyline, which pits their information retrieval skills against Emirac, which is a kind of prototype search engine referred to as having an electronic brain, quote-unquote. The film is credited with being the first to put computer technology into a library environment. And with the women characters dressed so urbanely, it's long been a favorite among librarians, real-life librarians. One of the things that makes the women of the desk set such positive characters, I think, is that they don't resist the introduction of new technology, but rather they embrace and come to thrive upon it. In opposition, say, to more prevalent notions from those times associating librarians with a certain stuffiness and ossification. I mean, led by 
led by Hepburn herself, the librarians in Desk Center, they're all sassy, funny, and very smart. All the elements we associate with Kate herself. A true rarity at that time for movie librarians, I think it's safe to say, but which I think we can also see leading directly to that Parker Posey character of Party Girl in 1995, whose independent, fully rounded example we're more likely to see more of than not in the 2020s. At least I hope so. Another strikingly atypical portrayal for its time can be found in the movie from 1956, just a year before Desk Set. That's the movie Storm Center, starring Betty Davis, who plays an heroic censorship-fighting director of a small-town public library. She's well-liked, her character, and respected in the town by children and adults alike. Everyone likes her. But when her character is asked to remove a book from the library, a book about communism, Davis ultimately refuses. She says, I couldn't take out a book whose ideas we don't like. And for that reason, she's fired. And of course, the rest of the film is... um, is, uh, takes place as a response to that. Now, if all such librarians were so heroic. But it takes someone of such unique gifts and stature, of Davis herself, like Hepburn, to truly lend credence to such a heroic character, especially for its time in the 1950s in the United States, still suffering from a certain anti-communist hysteria in its public life, not to mention the subordinate role of women in that very same public life. More recently, in both the Hollywood and Swedish versions of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, from 2009 and 2011, respectively, the heroine Lisbeth would probably make for a great atypical and very positive librarian. In the Betty Davis mode, if considerably younger, of course, she is a kind of librarian in all but name. I mean, she's not literally a librarian, but she really functions very much like one, um, and very much in the heroic sense as well, insofar as she's a complete purveyor of contemporary technology and doing plenty of research, both on Google and Wikipedia, (laughs) along with a generous amount of computer hacking. But well, not that uh, not that public librarians do computer hacking um, <laughs> necessarily. But while searching online for similar cases of past murders in the in the film in these adaptations, we can see Elizabeth employ research techniques such as excuse me research techniques such as the use of Boolean operators. You know the the keyboard signs and symbols necessary to narrow or widen search inquiries. But in a way, she also makes redundant in her expertise, her outside expertise. She's not a librarian, after all, even if she very much functions like one. She's kind of making redundant, and I hate to say this, the contemporary need for librarians. So good is she in her search techniques. And for this reason, um, I think Elizabeth in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a Maybe a good example of why young people don't much use physical libraries anymore, except as maybe a place to study, often with friends, and you know, because they have free internet access. 
like the character of Elizabeth, young people are now their own librarians in many ways, with every internet-ready computer a potentially universal or public library waiting to be searched for information, waiting to bring illumination and enlightenment. As a kind of contemporary re-representation of the positive earlier Hepburn and Davis characters, Elizabeth in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, she nevertheless provides in her radical self-expression an extremely marked physical contrast with the older rule-bound archivist of the same movie. I'm not speaking here of Hepburn and David, of course, but of the character in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo who is presented with a librarian, remember, who's presented with short, slicked-down hair and a dark, conservative wardrobe consisting of a grayish, buttoned-up shirt, a long cardigan, black skirt, black tights, and flat shoes. Always so sensible among movie librarians. All she needs are glasses hanging off a lanyard just to complete the stereotypical image of the quote-unquote spinster librarian. And a character type that I spoke about in greater detail in part one of this series. I mean, we even see this librarian character pushing a cart full of heavy books as if being weighed down literally by the large number of stereotypes being invested in her. I mean, it's almost an inconceivable image today, but there it exists, you know, only 10 years ago. And... um Definitely meant to be in contradistinction with Elizabeth, this younger, much more dynamic figure in a lighter command of her of contemporary computer technology. I mean, not one to be burdened with book carts and, you know, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. You know, information flows at the touch of her fingertips. So unfortunately, it is still true that in contemporary times, such as our own, such blatant reductive stereotyping of librarians still exists, and even in prominent films such as The Girl with the, Tra- the, the, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, even though in the same film there is a character very much like a librarian who is presented considerably more positively. I do struggle to think of good examples of atypical positive male movie librarians, even in recent times. Uh, in fact, I, I really have to go back to the past to find them. That might be my own, my own fault, my own oversight. But um, aside from that library, library character that I mentioned in All the President's Men, who, who was only present for a few seconds, I have to go back to Richard Benjamin's character, in Goodbye Columbus from 1969, where we can, can find a more positive male conception of uh, the librarian. Uh, Richard Benjamin in the film is, uh, is young, good-looking, uh, self-confident, um, you know, clearly caring about everyday public service. Um, not something we see... Um, very often, to say the least, in movies uh, generally. 
Uh, and there's this, uh, this touching scene where he is seen to help a young African-American boy who likes, who likes art books. But still, it's uh, very much the exception to the rule. Uh, even the rule, as presented in the, in the movie Goodbye Columbus, which otherwise does not depict um, Benjamin's co-workers in anything like a positive light. In fact, they're all dysfunctional and antisocial, unfortunately. Um, but also of the atypical variety is the great Hollywood actor Edward G. Robinson's last role in 1973's Soylent Green an otherwise dystopian science fiction movie in which he plays an aged but very sympathetic librarian who, um, who is called, a, a, in the parlance of the future, depi- future times depicted in the movie, he's referred to himself as a book. And um, as such, is assigned to help Charlton Heston's cop solve a murder. But he's clearly that information provider, that librarian that serves the plot of so many movies. But uncharacteristically, uh, and very atypically, a most, a mostly fully rounded character as well, whose domicile itself is suggestive of a, a congenial library-like atmosphere in which he meets with equally genial colleagues. I and mean, it's, 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 it's wonderful. Even, a heartbreaking portrayal when we know the outcome of the film. I mean, the film itself literally depicts librarians as the the last standing guardians of history and knowledge. And like that representation in David Fincher's Seven, it may be bleak. It's dystopian science fiction, after all. Yet it's also quite stirring in its own way. Certainly one of the most touching library scenes found in the entire history of the movies has to be in Wim Wenders' Wings of Desire from 1987, which is, in part, the story of an angel who longs to be mortal. At the beginning of the movie, two angels, that only we in the audience can see, walk through a crowded public library in Berlin, accompanied by a gently cacophonous medley of overheard thoughts of patrons as they sit alone in their carols or at their tables. The scene beautifully conveys the ideas of the library as a site of both individual human isolation and interconnectivity too. Light and dark, the film is photographed in black and white, but also in a strong degree of realism of what libraries are like. Whether refuges for lonely individuals or sites of community for like-minded people, it's all present in the few minutes of this scene at the beginning of the film with its beautiful, long, slow tracking shots. Now, these angel characters, they can't directly alter the fates of those in whose thoughts they connect with. But what they provide us with as viewers of the movie is a kind of solace and empathy, both poetic and metaphoric, that in the sum total of our collective knowledge and wisdom, that in the very ideal of the library itself, we might transcend the limitations of our own individual lives. Okay, that's it, folks. I'm going to draw a conclusion here to the second in my two-part series on the representation of libraries and librarians in the movies. Like the public opinions that they often reflect, the history of movies has mirrored and dramatized popular conceptions of both libraries and librarians. It's an inexhaustible subject, really, with many, so many examples, 
some of them quite positive, others too many really rather negative. But I think with the rise of feminism and a greater societal comfort with fluctuating gender, gender roles, the trend towards the positive over the past three decades or more is, if uneasily, in the ascendancy. But certainly the only thing for certain is that in the films of the future, such representations will continue to reflect the popular contexts in which they will be made. Many of the films discussed here are available to watch from the library, both on DVD and in Blu-ray, in a few cases, at least, as well as from innumerable streaming sites. You've been listening to Code St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next week for more, for more movie talk. And remember, if you, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at asktomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, People could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. Uh, One of the things that we did was uh, set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, And of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.